Well, thanks again for being the church and for bringing it into uh, this room here. And thanks for bringing it into your living room or the places where you are if you're worshiping online. Uh, thanks so much for uh, being the church. Um, the church is so needed and necessary uh, in times like this, um, as we will uh, soon be seeing. But a, a few weeks ago, as uh, Josiah and I were kind of planning out the last two weeks, the past two weeks, um, last week and then this week, I knew that uh, I'd be out and would need a, um, Josiah to fill in one spot, uh, one sermon. And so I said, okay, it comes down to either sex or politics. <laughs> Which one do you want? And uh, we drew straws, and I won't tell you who drew the short end of the straw. But um, here we are talking about uh, politics today, very important in light of probably the biggest, well, probably easily the biggest election of our lifetime. Some are saying it's the most important election uh, since 1860s when Abraham Lincoln and the Civil War movement and civil, uh, and civil War slavery was a hot topic issue. The more divided a people are, the more important the election is. And this is a very divided nation, a divided United States. Um, and it's a very important time in which we live. And as you come in here, uh, maybe some of y'all have voted, maybe some of you are not, maybe some of you will, maybe some of you are not allowed to, but um, there are questions that come to mind, things like, who should I vote for? Did I vote for the right person? Who are you going to vote for? Can I still vote for Kanye? <laughs> Is that okay? I don't know what kind of questions you bring into this room today, but there are a lot of questions. Um, and so what I want to do is try to bring the light of the wisdom of the book of Proverbs into our hearing as it relates to politics. Some of you may be like, dude, I thought church is not supposed to talk about politics. Well, we are. Here's why. Um, because politics, simply put, is the art of living well in community. Like, how do people in disparate places in one location, how do we live well together? What, is it look, what does it look like for us to live well here in America? What does it look like for us to be good citizens? What does it look like for us to cause human flourishing the way that God created us to live. Towards that end, it is important and imperative that we talk about politics, that the church be about politics, while at the same time not being partisan. I think that's the big key here. We must be political in the sense if we're talking about how we live well in community, but we're not to be partisan. Politics is important because when you get into politics, it informs the policies that influence people. That's why this is important. That's why we, we talk about things like, okay, what, here are the issues at hand. This is, it's the economy. It's the environment. It's about abortion. It's about Supreme Court justices. It's about the unit family. It's about all of these things. And the policies that are created through politics necessarily impact people. That's why this matters to us. And what St. Augustine said was, the best citizens on earth in your earthly kingdoms are the ones who are most committed to the kingdom of heaven. In other words, the citizens of heaven ought to be the ones who are the best citizens of their, citizen, of their citizenship, stewarding their stewardship here on earth, stewarding their citizenship here on earth. And so what I want to do today is to talk about the wisdom of Proverbs and the wisdom of the Word and how we can put those on as we look at this election season. We're going to look at Proverbs chapter 15, verse 14 to start. Proverbs 15, 14, and then Proverbs 14, 15, and then we'll look at a few other verses as we look at this Tuesday and beyond through the lenses of God's wisdom. Three thoughts, uh, the first of which will come from 15, 14, 14, 15. Proverbs 15, 14, this is the word of God for the people of God. It says, the discerning heart 
seeks knowledge, but the mouth of a fool feeds on folly. Okay? Discerning heart seeks knowledge. Are you discerning? Do you seek knowledge? Or are you a foolish person who just feeds on folly? Like whatever people say, I soak it up, I eat it up. And then verse 14, chapter 14, verse 15. A simple man believes anything, but a prudent man gives thought to his steps. Do you believe everything and anything that you hear? Oh, I saw it on Facebook. I saw it on Twitter. It must be true. Or are you a prudent person who's careful and thoughtful uh, and give thought to your steps, even in the choices that you make in terms of who you vote for? Here's the first thought. What does it look like? How does Christianity impact our vote? How does, Christi- how does our discipleship inform the way we engage in politics in this season of life? First thing is be informed, okay? Be informed. And here after the colon, this is important. Biblical correctness matters more than political correctness, okay? Biblical correctness matters more than political correctness, so be informed. My aim here, um, I know I'm going to offend uh, a-, a lot of you, and that's okay, but my aim is to be equally opportunistic in my offense, if that's okay, to, to, uh, to offend you, whether you're a Republican or a Democrat, you're on the left or you're the right. Um, hope to be, uh, hope to, I don't hope to offend you, but if you are offended, I hope that the person on the other side of the aisle is offended, but ultimately so that our minds can be reprogrammed politically by the teaching of the Scripture. Because here's a challenge for a lot of us. A lot of us, our religion is informed by our politics, rather than having our politics informed by our discipleship. What I want to do is I want to shift it in order that discipleship would be the lenses through which Christianity be the lenses through which you see your politics. Because the challenge in our day for anything is that we are a biblically illiterate people by and large. Uh, When I, I remember going into seminary and meeting people who just, they didn't know the Bible. Like, that's crazy for people who are going to be, thank goodness that Josiah is not like that. He knows the Bible. He loves the Bible. He reads the Bible. But there are a lot of people who are going into seminaries who don't. And to me, that's crazy that people who would be teaching the Word of God for their livelihood, for their vocation, don't know the Word of God. But that's true of many Christians also. If we say, uh, Christ is my reward, Christ my all in all, I've decided to follow Jesus. How can you follow Jesus if you don't know what Jesus says, what his word says? Biblical illiteracy is one of the curses within the church of our day to think that a Sunday morning hearing of the word of God is enough for me to be shaped in my mind to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Christians who don't know the Word of God, you, you may have heard these numbers said in 1950, the average unbeliever doesn't go to church, like people, man on the street, average person in 1950, non-Christian, knew more Bible verses than the average Christian sitting in churches today know. The average non-Christian in 1950 knew more Bible verses than the average Christian does today. Of course, if you're taking Harvest 201 or if you're a teacher of Awana, you are ahead of the curve. But you know what? The bar has been set pretty low these days. As a, as a Christian, as a child of God, as a disciple of Jesus, do you know what the Word of God says in relation to the issues and the events that we're voting for come Tuesday or that we've already voted for in the same way that if we don't know a biblical understanding of the sexual ethic, then we will form our sexual ethic based on what people tell us or based on what 
feels right or based on what other people are telling me or based on what uh, I, I don't want to offend anybody, so I'll just go with what they say is the right thing. The same thing is true politically. If we're not informed by the Word of God, we'll be informed by something else. For some of us, it's our political party. I've just, well, the reason I'm going to vote Republican is because I've always voted Republican. That's what my family has done for generations. That's what we do here in the South. Or I'm a voting Democrat because that's what my parents have done. Family has done that for years and years and years and years. I couldn't think of any other way to vote than to vote Democrat. Party affiliation is not a very good indicator, is not a very good way to vote, simply put, if you're trying to vote through a biblical lens, because there's some things that scripturally do line up with the Democratic Party, and there's some that line up scripturally with the Republican Party. So to blindly say this is what is the right thing to do, that's not an informed biblical discipleship. Okay? Maybe after you do your due diligence and you study and you seek biblical correctness, you'll come to the same conclusion, but let's do the work, right? Let's do that hard work of getting to that place. If it's not by party affiliation, some of us are voting because, well, it's based on our feelings. Oh, my gosh, I don't like the way that person talks. Or, you know what, I don't like the way that that, that person, like, I don't like the clothes that they wear. Or I don't like this, this and that or the other. And, and we hear from other people, and other people are so uh, shooting vitriol at one candidate or the other. And so you're like, hey, you know what, you're right. I'm going to vote for the other person then. Sometimes we do that. When I was in second grade, 1984, it was, uh, there was an election. And my second grade teacher was Mrs. Young. Um, all the boys in second grade remembered Mrs. Young because she was young and she was uh, beautiful to look at for some people. I didn't think so, but uh, my friends did. So here's Mrs. Young, and she was telling us, hey, wouldn't it be great at the time, two people who were going for the candidacy was the Reverend Jesse Jackson, right? Uh, African-American politician, more than he is a pastor. And then there was Geraldine Ferraro, who ended up getting the vice presidential nominee with Walter Mondale. And so my teacher, I didn't know that she was brainwashing us, but looking back, that's what she was doing. She said, you ought to vote in order that a, we could have the first black president in America in 1984. Or you ought to vote so that the first woman, female vice president, could be elected. Wouldn't it be great? Wouldn't you want to be part of that? I didn't realize, wow, that's what she was doing. But looking back on it, rather than having the first black president in 1984, the first female vice president in 1984, I think I would rather have the best president or the best vice president for the job. Wouldn't you want that? Like sometimes we vote emotionally because people tell us that's what you ought to do, or we vote based on political correctness. It's not politically correct to vote for XYZ candidate. Oh, I shouldn't vote for that person because if people knew I voted for that person, especially as a church-going person or especially as a XYZ, well, you fill in the blank. There are going to be people who look at you and say, how could you vote for that person? Wherever you are in the spectrum, there's got to be something deeper than political correctness that informs your vote. Biblical correctness matters more than that. Do you know what the Word of God says vis-a-vis -vis the issues that you are voting for in the election coming up. And as you talk about the things with other people that you're voting for, are you speaking from a lens that is biblical or are you speaking from a lens that is emotional or partisan or some other thing? See, there's a limitation because po political correctness is the darling of our society today because th that's the challenge. You... The greatest virtue that our world can give today, and this is our world, in the church it's different, but the greatest virtue that our world can give is, hey, just be tolerant of each other. It's the best thing that they can give. Just tolerate each other. That's political correctness, isn't it? 
Ain't no right or wrong. Just they can believe that, you believe that, but it's not bothering you. You don't have to fight over it. You don't need to argue about it. Just listen to what they say. Be tolerant about it. Let them have their truth and you have your own truth. But how far can that play out and still work? I don't know if you, there's a, a video that came out maybe about five years ago. It was filmed on the campus of the University of Washington in Seattle where this interviewer, he was probably about a 40, 30, 40-year-old 40 man, five foot nine, Caucasian guy. He was walking around, and this was a, during the time when people were like, yeah, you know what, if, you, if, if you're a dude, but you want to go into the women's bathroom because you feel more like a woman, you can do that. And if you're a woman uh, and, and you feel more like a man, you can go and use the, the men's bathroom. And so he was just interviewing people, and he's like, hey, what do you think about that? And people at, at UW, which is a very liberal, uh, liberal school, was, were saying, hey, you know what, I think they can do whatever they want to do. They can, they can do that. It's not bothering anybody. And then he said, what if I told you, what if I told you that um, I was a woman, what would you say? And, and, and all the people interviewed said, I would say, it's nice to meet you. And this is like plain, straight up, he's a dude. I would say, nice to meet you. I would say, good for you. I would say, oh, that's fine. I wouldn't say anything of it. I'd say, that's great. And then he said, what if I told you that I was Chinese? And they said, well, I would say, uh, I I wouldn't say anything. I would say, okay, that's cool, but I would think that's a little bit weird. Like, you wouldn't say anything to me if I told you that I was Chinese? No, I would think that maybe there's some part of you, like some ancestral part of your bloodline that's Chinese, maybe? What if I told you, he's five foot nine, right? What if I told you I was six foot five? Well, I mean, then I, I guess in your mind, if you feel you're six foot five, then I would say that, okay, you can believe you're six foot five. It's like, you wouldn't think that's strange? Like, I'm 5'9". I'm, I'm if I told you I'm 6'5", you, you, you wouldn't think there's anything wrong with that? No, I mean, if you could explain to me why you feel that way. Okay, what if I told you that I'm 7 years old? If I told you I'm 7 years old, what would you say? Uh, I would say, yeah, again, if you could explain to me how you believe you're 7 years old, then I would say that's fine. What if I tried to enroll in, in, in second grade? I'm seven, I say I'm 7, if I enrolled in second grade, would you think that would be okay? said, yeah, as long as you're not bothering anybody and as long as you feel that way and if you can, and, and what, how far does that go? So, okay, so if, I'm t- if I tell you as a 5'9", 40-year-old Anglo man that I'm a 6'5", Chinese girl who's 7 years old enrolling in second grade, like you'd be okay with that? They're, they're like, well, I mean, I would have questions, but I wouldn't want to step on your toes. I would have... That's not my place to tell you that that's wrong. That's tolerance and political correctness. That's the best that our world can do. Political correctness can only get you so far. There's got to be a better way. Jesus modeled that in the Gospel of John and said, here, Jesus came, not throwing out the baby of truth with the bathwater of not offending people, but it said Jesus came full of grace and truth. There's a better way to think and understand biblically because this is how the Creator has created society in order for flourishing to take place amongst human beings. There's a better way to communicate truth but to do it with grace instead of saying, It's not my position to say anything that might potentially offend anybody else. It's truth. It's grace. 
but understanding that biblical correctness matters more as disciples of Christ in the midst of everything that we do matters more than mere political correctness. That's the first thing, but what does that look like? The second thing that we see, okay, second thing that we see, not only our, our, our Christianity, our discipleship, the lenses through which we see everything is shifted because of our, our citizenship in heaven and the Word of God, the first thing is be informed. The second thing is be loving. Here's what that means, okay, be loving. Here's what it means is the greater good matters more than your individual desires. Okay, the greater good matters more than your individual desires. Again, I'm not talking about what the media pundits are going to tell you is important in your vote. This is at a biblical level. Our vote is informed more by the greater good than it is by our own individual desires. Look at what it says. Let's look at uh, Proverbs 29, uh, Proverbs 29, verse 7. It's talking about righteousness and, and, and peace and justice, but in this context, it says, verse 7, 29, verse 7. The righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. Okay? This word righteous, okay, huge, because in the, in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, righteousness is by faith alone. It says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness means a right standing before God. In other words, it means you are a follower of Christ. In those days, it meant you're a person who believed in the Messiah to come. Today, it means we believe in the Messiah who has come and who's coming again. We believe in Jesus. Righteousness and wickedness, then, are the Old Testament words for those who follow Christ today and those who don't. And the telltale sign that you are righteous by faith, it impacts your life. And here's why. This is what a righteous person looks like. They disadvantage themselves in order that the community might be advantaged. Okay? They disadvantage themselves in order to give the community an advantage. This is what it means to be righteous. I subjugate myself in order that others might be blessed. I willingly become lower in order that the greater good could be accomplished. Proverbs 14, verse uh, 34, this is what it says here. Proverbs 13, 44, 14, 34. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. Okay. Yeah, Solomon writing to the people of Israel at the time, and we're not Israel, we are not God's chosen nation or kingdom on earth. However, as a general principle, isn't it true that in every place you live, wickedness where a selfish person subjugates the people for the sake of their own desires never leads to flourishing? Righteousness, it says, exalts a nation. The best nations, nations thrive when people willingly disadvantage themselves in order that the community might be uplifted. A rising tide has a way of lifting up every ship in the ocean. That's what he's saying. The greater good matters more than our individual desires. That's what a biblically informed, discipleship-minded vote ought to look like. Again, that's not what the world is going to tell you. It's not what the media is telling you. The media is going to tell you it's all about the economy. It's all about you making the most money. So if you're a minimum wage worker, if you're a union worker, if you're a small business owner, that will, economy will inform the way you vote based on which party line stands best in line to help you gain the most money. That's the American dream, isn't it? A professor at the University of Notre Dame, Patrick Deneen, he says that, hey, 80%, 80% of Americans 
liberals and conservatives, liberals and conservatives, Democrats, Republicans, 80% agree. 80% are in agreement. And here's what they agree on, that everything is about a fierce individualism. It's all about me. It's about my freedom, about my rights. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. I'm going to define my own reality. I'm going to define my own rights. No, you're not going to dictate that for my life in any way. Here's what it looks like then for the conservatives. It means, hey, I'm going to be my own leader. I'm going to be my own boss when it comes to the economy, when it comes to making as much money as I can. I'm going to be my own boss when it comes to COVID-19. I'm going to wear my mask if I want to. Nobody's going to make me do that. That's what it looks like on the right. On the left, it means nobody's going to be my boss. It's this individualism as it relates to sexuality, gender identity, marriage. It's all of those things. It's religion. I'm going to do what I want to do. At the end of the day, the heartbeat of American culture is driven by an individualistic, fiercely individualistic nature that is, and you see it during the pandemic, it's crippling our nation. Because as people struggle with depression and anxiety to pandemic levels, we find ourselves so deeply alone, suffering alone, unable to come out into a community and to share these things because individualism is king in our nation. Biblical discipleship says there's a better way. We seek the greater good. We seek the greater good. What does that look like? Proverbs 31, verses 8 and 9. Uh, I forgot to mention this in, in, uh, in, our, in our first service, and so our media people got upset at me, said you skipped over a verse. Proverbs 31, 8 and 9, this is what it says. Speak up for those who cannot speak for themselves, for the rights of all who are destitute. Speak up and judge fairly. Defend the rights of the poor and needy. What if we used our vote, singular vote, to do what Scripture says exalts a nation, to do what the wisdom of Proverbs says, this is a biblical ethic when it comes to voting. Speak up for those who don't have a voice. Again, it doesn't push you any closer to a particular party. Who, who, who doesn't have a voice? It's the families who are getting separated at the border as much as it is the unborn children. It's the ethnic minorities, it's the racial minorities, the African Americans who are being, who, who are, are being, their voices are being snuffed out. It's the poor. It's the unborn generations who are going to live in the midst of our world with a sexual ethic that may be defined more by individualism than by Scripture. What does it mean? to speak out for the needs, to be a voice for the voiceless. And what if we began to think along those lines instead of merely along the lines of how I can make the most money in my life? Which president will allow that to happen in its quickest and easiest form? What if we began to think about the greater good of our nation? That's politics, and biblical ethics says that those whose minds are set on the kingdom of heaven become the best citizens on earth. What does that look like for us? I hope we wrestle with this. Wrestle with it. I know we've got like a day to wrestle with it, but pray about it. Think about it so that this informs every... Because the people who've made the, the biggest, like, think about 1860, Abraham Lincoln. It was people who said in the, in the midst of those days of slavery, if Lincoln loses that election... 
then probably the nation be divided. Slavery would continue for, for who knows how long. But it was people who said, you know what, I'm not, I'm not thinking about my own individual desires. I'm thinking about the greater good. In 1800s, Great Britain, it was the same thing. It was the, the, the greatest, um, the greatest uh, boon to their economy was the transatlantic slave trade. Hundreds of thousands of African people were being bought and sold and traded in Great Britain. It would be economic suicide for somebody to dare take a stand and say, you know what, this is wrong. But there was, a, there was a man of faith named William Wilberforce who said, you know what, this is wrong. This is not right. We've got to stand. These people made in the image of God cannot be bought and sold. People just like you and me cannot be bought and sold. And they stood on the, houses of, on the, on the steps of parliament and spoke against it and said something has to change. Policies that affect people need to be enacted in order that this does not continue. And even though they knew that it would cripple their economy, and it did for years, these men and women stood up and they cast their vote to say, we need to put an end to this inhumane slavery, treating people like animals. And they did, and it was the end of the African slave trade into Great Britain. What's the point? I think the point is twofold. One, God works powerfully through the men and women who, inspired by faith or by any other way, think about, think about the greater good above their own personal interests. But the other thing that it says, that it tells us is that your vote alone isn't enough. Right, some of us get so riled up about the fact that, oh, election day is coming and I'm going to cast my vote. Where are you going to cast your vote for this? Because, oh, I love all races or because I care about, abort, uh, about unborn children. You can do that, but how do we live that ethic out in between the four years, uh, in the four years in between elections? Right, we're so divisive and so, oh, my gosh, you're so bad about this and this and this and that and the other. But then when, it com- when push comes to shove and we live in these four years between voting days, there's nothing that would show anybody that we care about these things that we vote so passionately about. In other words, your beliefs must inform your ballot, yes. But your ballot and your behavior must be in unison also. How we live matters. In fact, it matters more, maybe, than a singular vote. I mean, oh, yeah, every vote matters. Every vote matters. President Bush won by 527 votes out of hundreds of thousands. Of, yeah, absolutely your vote matters. Yeah, that, that, it, it matters. But how you live, by and large, matters even more. So how are we going to live to seek the greater good above our own individual interests? To be a voice for the voiceless, because at some point in time, if America's here 30 years later, you're going to maybe have grandchildren, you're going to maybe be an, uh, an aunt or uncle, maybe somebody's going to, this little kid's going to sit on your lap and they're going to say, you know what, 2020, we read about 2020 being the most divisive year in history, the most divisive election in, in, in our lifetime. There was all of these things happening. There was a pandemic. There was division. There was racial injustice. There were people being oppressed. There was all of this stuff happening. And the question that our grandchildren are going to ask, Gary Hagan says, you've heard this before, they're going to sit on your lap and they're going to say dad or they're going to say mom or they're going to say grandma what did you do about it like what did you do about it and I hope that by the grace of God and the conviction of the spirit that we would say you know what come and let me tell you a long story of what I did do 
not a long story of what I could have done or what I thought about doing or how I voted to, and that's it, but here's what I did. Here's what I did by the grace of God, by the conviction of the Spirit in my heart. This is what I did in order to stand for Christ in the midst of this world. The second thing, not only be informed, but be loving the common good, the greater good above our own interests. And then the last thing is be peacemakers. Okay, be peacemakers. Unity in Christ matters more than fidelity to a party. Okay, unity in Christ matters more than fidelity to a party. There's a, a lot of talk, right? a lot of talk about what, oh my gosh, um, if you're a Christian, how could you vote for this person? And, and, and on the other side, no, 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 if you're a Christian, how could you vote for that person? Hopefully at this point, you're beginning to realize that what Jesus said he meant when he said, my kingdom is not of this world. Jesus doesn't come to you and say, hey, you know, hey, Jesus, uh, are you a Republican or a Democrat? He says, neither. This kingdom's not of this. We should be fiercely kingdom independent. We should, it's, Jesus is not, oh, he's, he's Democrat or Republican. He's radically taking the biblical things of the Republicans and radically taking the, the things of the Democrats and he's holding them in tension. He says, this is who I am. I don't fit into any party. It's Joshua 5 when Joshua comes and he stands before the commander of the army of the Lord and with his sword drawn and Joshua says, who are you? Whose side are you? Are you for us or are you for our enemies? And he says, neither. But as the commander of the army of the Lord, I've come. Take off your sandals because you're standing on holy ground. Joshua realized, oh my gosh, the God of the universe Okay, not only over America, but God over the universe is not going to be squeezed into this tiny little donkey or tiny little elephant, and oh, that's who he is. No. He's asking, are you willing to break out of your box in order to follow me? What that means is, in your vote, you will by necessity be disagreeing with some of the things. If you're, if you're reading from a biblical lens, you will disagree with a lot of things in, your, in, in the party that you're voting for. And you ought to also embrace some of the things of the party you're not voting for. Like, that's a biblical ethic, right? To understand that. Hey, you know what? I don't like this president because of the way that he uh, treats minorities. But then at the same time, there's the issue of Supreme Court justices and, and what that looks like for the future. How can I, how can I hold these to intention? But there's, there's also like the, 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 the biblical ethic of, of family and, and sexuality and, and marriage. But then there's also the issue of, of families being separated at the board. What, what, do we, what do we do with those things? How do we hold these things in tension from the womb till the tomb that all lives matter and embracing that kind of an ethic and that kind of a reality? It's by understanding that your partisanship is not going to, is not going to bring about the unity nor the hope alone that you want it to do. Our hope is not in parties. It's not in presidents. It's not in who sits in the Oval Office come January. In fact, you, it's not just today. Go back to the early church, okay? You, again, this is reading your Bible in the book of Acts. You read about the Bible. The Bible in their social witness were deeply committed and known by five things, okay? Five things, very important. One, they were fiercely and intentionally multiracial and multi-ethnic. They were not, let's be the Jews, it's just us four, no more. They were looking for people of all nations to baptize, to become disciples of Christ, just like Jesus said. They were fiercely and intentionally multiracial and multi-ethnic. But they also cared deeply for the poor. 
they were as people would sell their fields, sell their homes, sell their lands, and give it to the apostles so that the poor could be taken care of. They were known for the third thing, which was their love for their enemy, the forgiveness that they offered to their enemies. They were countercultural and supernatural in doing that. This enemy love was something that people were like blown away by. The fourth thing that they were known for was their passionate love for the unborn and for children, for infants, for babies. Famously, it was said by non-Christian historians that when a, a girl was born in a culture that did not prize girls, or when a, a child with, with birth defects was born, they would be thrown out into the trash heap and left to be burned along with the rest of the trash. Non-Christian historians from Cicero to Josephus would say things like, these Christians are strange though. They not only care for their children who are broken, but they go into the trash heap and they rescue our children as well. There's something strange about these people. And then the last thing is they were fiercely committed to a biblical picture of marriage and sexuality, of one man, one woman. In the midst of a culture, a Roman empire, that was just blowing up in homosexual relations. That's why Romans 1 talks about the things that it does, about uh, exchanging unnatural lusts, uh, natural lusts, man for a woman, woman for a man, with unnatural ones. Because homosexuality was something that didn't just pop up in the 21st century. It was there in the Roman Empire, and it was there in abundance. But the strongest apologetic against that and the reason why that took a sharp downturn and was dormant for many, many, many centuries is because they saw the biblical marriage ethic of a man and a woman and the joy and the satisfaction they experienced that caused those who were in same-sex relationships to say, this, there's got to be something better than this. The early church was known for these five things, Tim Keller says. The first two, okay, they're multi-ethnic, multi-racial, and their care for the poor. These are things, by and large, the Democrats will say, this is part of our platform. The last two, right, a biblical ethic of marriage and a, a care for the unborn and babies, that's a Republican ethic. The one in the middle is the one in the middle. We are all trying to love our enemies. Jesus and Christianity doesn't fit into a box. What that means is you need to think through, what is the conviction that matters most to me in this election? What is the hill that I need to die on? What, what are the things that I, I, <coughs> I can't compromise in? And you need, to, you need to prayerfully vote your conscience and to know that at the end of the day, uh, you're going to be voting for the lesser of evils because both, because both fail. Both will fail us. Or every option there is amongst the independents and the write-ins and the Kanye's and all that. Oh, everyone's going to fail us. Everyone's going to fail us question is, in your conscience, what do you deem to be the most important thing? Because the reality, the Bible tells us, it speaks to every issue, every issue, every issue. But what it does not do is it does not tell us how we're to accomplish that. Yeah, we're, supposed to, we're supposed to have heart for the poor. We're supposed to love the refugees. We're supposed to love the unborn. How, how do we do that? Do we do that through government policies and regulations? Do we do that through nonprofit organizations? Do we do that through the church? Do we do that through our own individual agency and our ability to do that? How do we do The Bible doesn't tell us how. Therefore, therefore, there's room for us to disagree, and there has to be. There has to be. Look at what it says in, in uh, Proverbs chapter 18, uh, verse, uh, verse 26. No, verse 2, verse 2. It says, a fool finds no pleasure in understanding. 
but delights in airing his own opinions. A fool delights in, in, in a fool t- finds no pleasure in understanding, but delights in airing his own opinions. If we're wise, we'd be willing to engage in conversations because we realize that a vote in itself, election day in itself, is not enough to change things. We've got to work together across the aisles, and perhaps it's going to be in the church that the greatest opportunities for unity can happen, the greatest demonstration of a counterculture can happen, where you take the best of both sides and say, let's wed them together in the gospel and live out a fiercely biblical ethic that really understands what it means to work for the rights of the elderly, but also to work for the rights of the unborn, that understands what it means to fight for, uh, for a biblical understanding of, of marriage, but at the same time, that understands deeply what it means to, to care for the environment, to think about all of these issues and to hold them in tension, but to fight and to work across lines in order that we don't die on the hill of our party platform, but we find our unity in the one who gave his life the one for the many. Because at the end of the day, guys, no matter who's president, (laughs) Jesus will still be king. That's not going to change. Our ultimate hope is not in who resides in the White House. Our ultimate hope is in who sits enthroned in glory and is not up for re-election. He was and is and forever will be. Our ultimate hope, our ultimate hope, and therefore our ultimate focus is not in a donkey or in an elephant, but it's lifting our eyes even higher to the lion and the lamb. The lion who reigns, the lamb who was slain. In order that we could experience life, in order that human flourishing could happen, as we live out a biblical ethic. He is our ultimate hope. Our candidates, again, voting for the lesser of evils because neither is worthy of our absolute allegiance. But there is one who is. And in following him, we do our best. We will do our best, not only on Tuesday, but even after we hear the news and until the next election, we work and we labor to be the church in order to, help inform the policies that shape the people who matter to God. That's why this matters to us. Let's pray. Let's pray and just ask the Lord that He would help us to see Him, that He would help us to see Him over and above everything else in this season of division, in this season of fake news, in this season of he said, he said, she said, or they said, and this said, and how could you believe that in the season of just uh, mudslinging and finger-pointing? Christian, you and I are called to be better, to rise above that. Our citizenship is not only here on this earth, but it's above. And as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, that makes us the best citizens here on earth. And I don't know what this looks like fully. I'm trying to figure it out. I'm trying to learn as I go along. I don't do this well. But I know that we need to do better. I need to do better. So let's pray. Let's ask the Lord. Lord, help us. Help me to be the best citizen 
in order that I might lead to the flourishing of humanity in the place where I'm called to live. And that I might, by faith, by action, be an agent so that the kingdom of God would come on earth in some ways as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Ask the Lord. God, I need wisdom. I need love. I need grace. I need understanding. I need faith. Let's pray that the Lord would help us as we go through this week and beyond. Let's pray for a minute like that together, and we'll continue to, uh, yeah, continue to uh, seek the Lord's face together. prepare to come to the table of God's grace as we think about the Lamb of God worthy to be slain only one could be the perfect substitute the one for the many a pure spotless sinless flawless Lamb who subverts the pictures of what leaders and rulers and sovereigns ought to be. As we think about this Jesus who humbly comes in order that we might be part of a bigger family, who humbly came in order that we might be united to him, thereby united to one another. Jesus comes to erase division between people and God and people and people. So if there's anything in your life, in your heart, the Bible calls it sin. If there's anything that would break your fellowship with God or that has broken fellowship with people, let's confess that before the Lord God right now. Let's ask that he would cleanse us through the mercy seat. Splattered with the blood of the Lamb of God. Let's ask that he would wash us and cleanse us that there be no division between us and God in fellowship. There be no division in fellowship between us and our fellow humans in order that we would live in unity. This is what this table represents. Let's spend a few moments in confession of our sins before the Lord that we would experience His forgiveness, His mercy, His love and grace so that we come to the table in a manner worthy of the gospel. Let's pray together for a couple moments confessing our sin, receiving His forgiveness before I pray for us and give us the words of institution to come to this table.
heaven, thank you so much for this table, the visible reminder of our unity in Christ and our union with Christ. Pray that as we take of these elements that we'd experience you at a deeper level. The confessions, the Westminster Confession say that the grace we receive from this sacrament is the same kind of grace we receive when we hear the word of God spoken, preached over us. Lord, may our souls be caught on fire again to love you, to see the beauty of the gospel, to see the worthiness of the Lamb, and to bow before you, before whom one day every knee, every knee, every knee, from the most powerful politician to the most humblest of people, will bow in every tongue, the most boastful to the most humble, proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. We thank you so much. We love you because you've loved us first. As we come at your invitation to this table, Lord, may our hearts be renewed. In Jesus' name we pray.